Hi, welcome back to In The Pink with me, Natalie Pinkham and Bose, helping you stay connected throughout the lockdown and beyond. And I hope you guys are doing well. It's a strange time. There's so much going on on the streets of London, on the streets of every city, not just in this country, but the world. And uh, now feels like the time that we should be talking most and communicating and understanding one another. So please do keep sending me your feedback on the podcasts that have gone before and any ideas of podcasts you want to hear, people you want to hear from. I'd love your suggestions. And actually, my next guest has come about because of a suggestion from a mutual friend. And the guest is Mark Billingham, better known as Billy from SAS Who Dares Wins. And the reason that I got chatting with him was because a great friend of mine through Formula One Um, an ex-owner of a team, in fact, listened to Foxy on In The Pink from SAS Who Dares Wins and thought that Billy would also make a very strong guest. And I'm pleased to say he didn't disappoint. He's got some cracking stories, some great advice, um, and he's just an all-round great bloke with an amazing wife, and together they are doing tremendous things helping people all around the world. So I hope you're going to enjoy this as much as I did doing it, producing it. Um, It was obviously a lockdown, so I couldn't get to see him face to face. We had to do it via Zoom, but hopefully that doesn't take away anything from his character and his stories and his advice to us all. Here he is, Billy Billingham. Well, great to see you, Billy. Thank you so much for joining us. I can imagine that lockdown is probably, well, you tell me, are you a bit restless? Are you craving a challenge? How are you feeling? No, I, I'm embracing it. I'm, I'm loving it. You know, if you've spoken to any sort of military side people before, we're used to lockdown. You know, normally in our lockdown, we haven't got electricity. We haven't got a proper bed to sleep on. We haven't got all the luxuries we've got here. And, and generally, somebody's probably trying to kill you. This is, this is great, you know, other than sort of being away from family, you know, that's difficult, that's the hardest bit, but again, like a military guy, that's, you're used to it, the hard bit is, they're just around the corner, but you can't go and see them, so, yeah, it's tough that way, but myself and my wife have really embraced it, we've got on top of all, all our work, our charity stuff, our, opened all the letters like everybody else that you push under the sort of undercover somewhere, I don't know, we've got through, getting the loads done, we've merry condoed our house and found rooms we didn't even know were here, so it's been great, we, and we're training like mad, you know, keeping fit, because obviously my job is to keep it fit because of the work I do now, so it's been good, we've really embraced it, and um, it did just get a little bit, a bit of cabin fever, you know, because you're restricted to this, that, the other, and we miss going to the pub because we, we're good pub people. So we missed that side of it, but, but, you know, you've got to do what's right, I think. And, and you know, staying at home or, or being sensible about social distancing, I would say, rather than staying at home, exactly, um, is, is what's got to be done for now until they find a cure or where it is or, you know, we get the, the sort of green light to go back to what might be normal, whatever that's going to be, who knows. Yeah. I guess it is part of you must be part of your psyche to have discipline, to be resourceful with the limited resources that you've got, and to be patient. 
I presume they're prerequisites for what you do anyway. Uh, absolutely. And again, it's encompassed in one word there, Natalie, which is discipline. You know, all those things go into, those ingredients go into one bubble of discipline. It's just about doing the right thing and being sensible. And, you know, sometimes it's uncomfortable and you've just got to get through that and, and for the benefit of others rather than yourself. So, yeah, it's just, it's something we've, we've you know, I've had 30 odd years of discipline for the military. And people in civilian, like, you all have discipline. Everybody gets told what to do, whether you like it or not like it. It's just about adhering to what's right and doing that. Okay, Billy, well, tell me a bit about your childhood. Tell me kind of where it all began for you, because I read somewhere that um, it certainly was far from affluent, shall we say. Yeah, I, um, I was born in Walsall, the West Midlands. I, I, we had, we're a family of five kids, mom and dad as well. Um, lived on a council estate. My dad and my mom were factory workers, basically, all their life. They constantly, as I remember growing up, were working 12-hour shifts, you know, mum would work the first up till sort of six at night and then dad would be out six till six through all through the night. And that went on for years and years and years. And due to that, and I guess in the neighbourhood that I got, I was brought up, there was a lot of um, a bit of tension in terms of those gangs, there was a bit of trouble, there was all that sort of stuff in the Midlands at the time. And I went a little bit rogue from the age of nine, really. I was getting in trouble. I was getting gangs. I was being brought back over the weekend by the police for fighting, believe it or not, at the age of nine, which was ridiculous. When I look back at it, I'm not proud of it. But yeah, so, and it all started there, really. And as I, if you've read the book, I don't know, but in the book, I talk about how uh, I used to steal Trilby hats. And, and I don't even know why we did it. And we had this crazy, I had two, two friends of mine that had run in front of the people, which was generally worn by old people, old men. And one day I stole this old guy's hat, I sent my two mates in front to distract him. I stole the hat. The guy was about 70 and he had a big trilby on and a big crombie on. And he chased me. I was nine and I could run, I was fit. And he caught me. And rather than give me a good hiding, he, said, he grabbed me and he said, Listen, keep the hat. He goes, There's something about you. Come to my boxing club. And so you, you imagine this today. Okay, so it's, it's like wintertime, February. This old man who normally would give me a good hiding said, come to this boxing club. And this was on a Sunday. And then on the Monday morning, uh, sorry, Monday at six o'clock at night in February. So there's snow on the ground. It's pitch black. I was nine years old. I'm walking downtown to a pub on my own to go around the back, knock the door and meet an old man who was going to give me a good hiding, who told me he's going to teach me boxing. But that's what happened. And he really became a very influential man in my life. And put me on the right road. And he sat, he stood, he stood me in this corner and he said, look, and he taught me all about boxing and what it really meant. And he said, it's not a sport of brutality. It's, it's a game of, a poor man's game of chess. It's actually, you have to be smart. You have to think. You have to outwit someone. You have to be able to read what's in front of you. Be one step ahead. Always be ready to move. Always ready to go forward. And I, my mantra I use is uh, always a little further. And to this day, and it's true, that was the first time I ever heard he used to say to me, you've always got to go that little bit further. You've always got to go out of your comfort zone. And I was nine years old, and I never forgot it. So you imagine parents today allowing their kid, nine-year-old, to go and meet some old guy, and, you know? So that's what happened. And that was, that was kind of the beginning of my childhood and, and issues and what I really remember about it all. And I was a rogue at school, didn't want to learn, thought I was tough, all the rest of it. 
you know, and at the age of 13, I'd been expelled for about the third time after I glued the maths teacher to the chair, thinking it was funny. He didn't. I mean, in fairness, <laughs> it's quite funny. Well, it was, but he, he collared me for detention. I'll never forget it. And every time I got detention, obviously, you'd be in a different class at the end of the day. I was just like it. I'd run off. I wouldn't go. And then one day, he waited for me, and he took me up to the second floor and put me in the room with him and locked the door. Then he went out to do something, locked the door. I climbed out the window and jumped out and ran off. Of course you did. Of course you did. Yeah, sorry. I, I, I'm going to go back to that, that old boy who's Trilby and Nick's. I mean, what... What an incredible sliding doors moment. Like if, you, if you'd nicked somebody else's Trilby, that might, well, that would never have happened. But no. what a guy, what a man, what a man to, to turn a situation around for a young lad like you. Yeah, well, the thing was, when I got to the club nowadays, what I learned was there was a bunch of kids all from my area that I knew of from different gangs. And he, what he basically did was, where, you know, a lot of us do, you kind of turn, you, you look at a bunch of kids and you go, oh, they're just trouble, stay away from them. They're the people that probably need the help. And he realised that. He's probably had the same sort of childhood and um, upbringing like I did. But he took the time. So it was like breaking in a bunch of stallions. Break them down into what they can be. And that's what he did. And these kids, we used to go on a Monday night and a Wednesday night. And sometimes on a Friday night. Uh, every night. Uh, uh, on these nights from six to eight. And he'd train us. And he spent time teaching you. Each individual. And... You know, and he felt good about what he was doing, and 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 it was it was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. But yeah, he was a really influential guy in the Midlands, and he took the time with the people that really need the help, where most people turn their nose up at that. They're just trouble. Leave them. And uh, in that group was kids, like I say, I think I was probably one of the youngest. But then there was kids, eleven, twelve, from all around my area, different gangs. But they all came together for that time, and they're all disciplined, and they all taught, were taught, they all learned. And I kind of gravitated towards that as my education. I didn't want to learn anything in school because I thought I didn't understand why maths would help me and I didn't understand why I needed to learn how to apostrophes and full start. What's that going to do to me? And at the same time, roughly, sorry, within those years, I joined the cadets. And in the cadets, I was learning how to do first aid. And it was a military insight, you know, how to read a map. And that was all made sense to me. It was practical. So again, he kind of was forcing me even further away from education, which is wrong, of course. And, and like I said earlier on, my mum and dad, God bless them, were brilliant people. They just couldn't control me because they were working. All- does he, does he um, have any idea what you've gone on to achieve with your life? I think he died many years ago. And, you know, to this day, I, I can't really remember his name. Um, I think it was Robert Mitchum, believe it or not. Um, but I don't know. I can't remember. I really got because what he did when I got to 11 years old, so he had me for two years, he passed me on to a proper boxing club, Blockstreet's Boxing Club, who again were brilliant. I met another bunch of influential people in my life, uh, who were the trainers there, Eddie Bolos and Henry, and a guy called Bill Tyler, who were no bullshit type guys. They listen, you'll do as you're told. And we had a very old fashioned, rocky, Balboa sort of training theme. You weren't allowed music, you weren't allowed water until you finished, and you trained. You trained for a reason, and he was brilliant. And then the other influence on the other side of the fence was a guy called Mac Gaunt, who was, took me through the cadets. And Mac was the same. Mac was a legend of a guy. And all he did was take care of rogue kids like me in the cadets. He spent time with them and sort of broke you down from, you ain't as tough as you are. And he taught you stuff. Yeah. And he made us learn. And he punished you for if you didn't learn. But he was the guy that really 
set my mind to where I wanted to end up, which was a military. That's amazing. Well, that's, that was the kind of child that I had. And yeah. like I said, I left, I was playing truant at 13. I was getting in trouble again. And I was a nightmare to my parents when I look back, you know, awful. And, and it's quite you, funny because I got a funerals and the, my aunties all, and my uncles always say to you, you're the one who put the silver in your mom's hair. And I was. But then at the age of 15, I, um, I got a job myself. I was working in a factory, electroplating, similar to what my dad was. My dad had actually worked there 20 years before. And it was, it was totally illegal, of course, but I was getting paid cash in hand and I was working the night shift. <laughs> and yeah, I was working in an electroplating firm. Didn't you and have a horrible only... accident? Didn't you have a terrible accident in the... In the... In yeah, so I was about 15 and yeah, nearly 16, and I'd already now decided I'm going in the army, influenced that way, and I was doing this bit of work till I could get, uh, get in, and then one night, I was working the night shift, and if anybody knows about electoral plates, you have a, these vats, they're like small pools, and one's full of water, one's full of uh, sulfuric, sulfuric acid, one's full of caustic soda, the other one's full of zinc, and what I was operating the crane. And the crane was messing around, all I didn't do it right, and it got dislodged. So I had to get up on top of the top. Imagine health and safety today, geez. And a long story short, I slipped, and I slipped into the caustic soda. And by the grace of God, I do not know how I got out. And in the factory at the time, it must have been about midnight-ish. There was no one else in. The guy working with me, Carl, had just gone to use the toilet. So he'd gone out, and I was fixing this, and I slipped. And as I slipped into it, a six foot bat. I only went in just above below my knee, and the pain as the stuff as soon as it touched your legs, the skin was hanging off. And I bounced backwards. I remember that doing that and then being caught. Carl had obviously come back in and saw what and came round. And as I jumped backwards, you know, he, he caught me and ran me to the taps, turned the taps on, and ripped my coveralls off. And basically, all the water just like it went inside a layer of skin, and all my skin just started to peel off. So he did what he needed to do, which was neutralise it as best he could because it was chemicals, and then took me to hospital. And then when I went to hospital, obviously, there was all hell brought loose, panicking. So I had to say I broke into the factory. Otherwise, all these people could have probably lost the job that they closed the factory down. So that's what I did. And the police got involved, but it was weird that they never really sort of followed it on because I think I had a little bit of a police record anyway. They were like, this is just a role. He's another one in his, another entry in his bad books, like, you know? But what it did do was it slowed me down from joining the military because uh, I wanted to go into 16 as a junior leader and I couldn't now because I've got injuries. So how long um, was the injury? Like how, how badly did it affect you? I, it was bad. I mean, I, I basically had hardly any skin on my feet. Um, I mean, there was skin there, but there was like, for instance, where your Achilles tendon runs down the back, that gap there was a hole right the way through almost. Yeah, on both feet. It was really bad. So I, I used to to go and get get them dressed and diluted out every, every single day, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And then they started to wheel pretty quick. Uh, but it took me, so it took me nearly a year then to get into, into the military. So we delayed me from going in as a junior leader at 16. I went in at just over seven, or 17 in a bit. But um, in between this as well, because I, I used to have to go up to Wolverhampton for every two weeks to be weighed to join the army because at the time so I was too light because I was boxing quite a lot then and they said to join the parachute regiment which I wanted to do that I had to be 10 stone which turned out to be not true but this is what I had to do so I said go over and then I had the injury and whilst I had the injuries they then looked into the whole of my history and when I was a kid I broke my femur which is obviously the biggest bone in your body and I never declared it 
So now they've got all my medical records and that added to the delay again. So there was a burn to the leg. Which was, I fell off a wall. I fell off a wall when I was a young kid and snapped my femur and spent six weeks in hospital. Your poor mum. Yeah. I can't imagine I how stressful it was oh. being your mother. Oh, yeah, then at 15, I got in a fight and got stabbed. Uh, it was just, it was just, I was just rogue. I just, I was just going rogue and out of control. And, and the thing is, I'm a, I'm a middle child. I've got an older brother, older sister, younger brother. And, and it, I always say this, that a middle child is, you know, somewhat different about us. We're wired different. What a pain in the ass, basically. And uh, yeah, so I was living up to that middle child syndrome and getting in a lot of trouble. And, and that was kind of the childhood and how it all went until eventually I got into the military. So it sounds to me as if, even though you were, you know, clearly, as you say, a bit of a rogue, there was something yeah. deep down that told you you craved discipline, that you needed that direction, yeah. you needed the structure that the military could offer. Because it's interesting that right from very early, that was what you wanted to do. I was actually very smart in, in many ways, because I also knew, and I did do this, from that young age of nine, with the thing with the incident with the old guy, I kind of gravitated towards elderly people because I knew in my head, they've already been through the circle of life. They've probably had these mistakes too. And they give you the benefit of their knowledge. And it's like anything, you know, I took that knowledge, but I still dip my toe in the water to see, Oh, you know, it's like somebody says to you, Oh, oh don't touch that. Cause that's hot. And you touch it. Don't you? You go, Oh yeah, you're right. It is hot. I didn't grab hold of it now. Cause I've, I've been already told I've had the benefit of the knowledge, but I still, you know, they're saying stop getting in trouble, stop fighting. But I didn't. I was still fighting. I was still doing this. So, but I did gravitate towards elderly people and, and people with knowledge. And, and, I, and it helped me. It put me on the right track until I got to the military. Looking for guidance, clearly, which is yeah. you know, amazing that, that he was able to, to give you that. So you ultimately joined the Parachute Regiment, what, in 1983? In 83, yeah, October 83. Yeah, and, then, and he, so, sorry, go on. No, go on. Where, where from there? How did that start to unfold? Well, no, I, mean, I, I joined, the, uh, I was in the Marine Cadets. So as I said to you, I met Matt Gaunt and the Gaunt family, the two brothers were in the Cadets and so was the, his daughter as well. And they were amazing people. And it kind of would have made sense for me. I haven't done six years in the Cadets now to go towards the Marines, but there was, uh, it was just after the Falklands War and all the guys... And I, that was 1982. All the guys that had been in the cadets before me came back who had fought in the war, Falklands War and did amazing jobs. And I remember talking to them all, all their stories. And there was a paratrooper guy there uh, who'd been injured on Mount London. And I just heard his story, Frank, a good friend of mine. And I, I heard his story and I thought, that's where I want to go. Something in my head again clicked. It sounded more fair. So that's why I went to the parachute regiment. And I did. And I joined in 83, as I said. And... I realized this was the time really where I, I stood on a platform and thought, I am out of my depth. I ain't the big tough guy no more. I am now a small fish in a big pond. Because I, I stood there with 70 other people that I didn't know from all over the country, all over from Scotland, Wales, England. And, and our instructors had all been in conflict, been to war, and they're pretty tough people. Tough, but really firm and fair people, really nice, nice people. In, in a military sense, but they were great and experienced people and they were no bullshit people. They weren't going to take any crap from some scumbag from the West Midlands who thinks he's tough. And I learned that pretty quick. The biggest thing I'm going to have to learn is keep my mouth shut because I won't be getting away with anything. And I didn't. 
So I turned up in, in the depot of the parachute regiment, 70 other guys looked down the line and said, God, I'm out of my depth. I didn't have any confidence. I'd never really had to prove myself to this level. And then as time went by and people started starting to fall out and, and fall by the wayside, I was still there and I was growing in confidence. I was learning and I was enjoying it. And it was hard and I was being challenged to the position I'd never been challenged in all my life. And anybody going through depot, probably to, if they're honest with themselves, they'll tell you the truth, tell you the same. You know, I was, I was a tough little kid, I was fit. Nothing in comparison to what I was going through now. This was different. This was, this was real. You know, and I was and like, enjoyed it. I, I did enjoy it, but it was hard. I, I can remember myself being on runs and thinking, I don't think I'm going to be able to finish this and looking for an excuse to twist my ankle or do, but I didn't. Somebody says, no, no, that go and flick back the old man. Always a little further, always a little further. And he was in my head, go, 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 go. So I did. And I had a wonderful time in the parachute regiment. I went all the way through training and then joined my battalion, the third battalion. The parachute regiment at the time had three battalions. Well, it still does. One, one para, two para, three para. And I went to three para. And it was just fantastic. I joined them in Belize, Central America. I'd never been out of Walsall. I went to London because I had to go and see a doctor specialist because I broke my leg, as I said, and didn't declare it. You had to do some tests before I could go in the army. That's as furthest I've ever been. You know, a, a plane, the only time I see a plane was going overhead. I've never been on a plane. I was from a council estate. And the next thing, I'm in one getting kicked out of it. <laughs> so it, was, it was a crazy old transition, but, you know, a brilliant time. And like most kids who were there with me, we're all from the same background. So it was great. We're all in the same boat. Do you think that you need adversity to develop tenacity? Do you think your back needs to be against the wall in it order does. to, I mean, to Absolutely develop? you do. We can't live in a mamby-pamby world and every, everything wrapped in cotton wool. We can't. Life is, life is a challenge. And if you don't prepare for a challenge, you'll come unstuck later on in life when you ain't got everybody around you that's making it easy for you. You do need to have your back against the wall. That's how you learn. That's how you develop. You know? And it's about life is it's about making mistakes, but it's about learning from mistakes, you know, not repeating it. When you repeat a mistake, the same mistakes, then it's a problem. Then you've got a problem. Then you really need to be sat down if you're not being told or not working it out yourself and being put on the right road, you know, but you do, absolutely you do. Life needs to be tough. Yeah. It has to be. It's interesting though, because we'll talk more about SES Who Dares Win soon, but I'm interested to know because clearly not everybody has had such a, a difficult childhood as yours and they've never really been tested. It doesn't mean that the fight isn't in them. It's just they haven't had to dig deep to find it no. yet. No, so we, They don't necessarily know what they're capable of. No, and we're all guilty of this because... I look back at my, what my life was like, and I don't want to say that's how my kids should go through life or anybody else's kids should go. We should make it a little bit easier, but we should also make it a little bit challenging. You know, the things, and, and please don't all jump on the bandwagon. Schools don't have competitions now because they're weak. Listen, that's life. That's life. We don't have a competition. How can anybody prove themselves to be the best? Because some people are naturally good at some things and not so good at others. You know, the little kid who weren't great on the 100 meters and you know, he likes going to McDonald's or whatever he likes to do, he's probably smarter in the maths route. So we, it all balances out. We take that away from kids now. We don't give them a chance to be competitive. We don't, it's ridiculous. 
in my eyes. It's true, yeah. It's, been, it's funny actually you should say that because just this morning, my son, my little boy, um, learned to ride a bike for the first time. So it's amazing yeah. that lockdown he's learned to ride a bike. But when he came back, he had this big cut on his elbow. And he was like, Mom, look at my cut. And he was actually really proud of it. It was like a badge of honour. He's like, I got that, but I learned how to ride my bike. <laughs> you, brilliant. Exactly that though, isn't it? You know what I mean? Let's be honest, the, the tapestry of life is, as a kid, you grow up, you bang into every corner of the table. You can't prepare them for everything. They close their fingers in the door. It's going to happen. Yeah. This stuff happens. You know, it's, it's things like boiling kettles and the, the date. That's what we've got to really be on top of. But let them live. Let people live. Let people learn. Make a few mistakes. Be poked in the chest now and again. Be told that you ain't kingpin. Because we, we need to know that. You know, I, I've, I've become civil medalist in many things where I think I'm going to be the, be the champ. You know, I've been put on my ass a few times in the boxing ring and it, it taught me. And right to a, a, very, a, two, a year, two years ago, maybe three years ago now, I did a boxing charity match and I, st I still thought I was 25. I'm f I was 52, stepping into the ring against a 25-year-old who was supposed to have been a veteran, by the way, for charity. And luckily, my wife came over and said, you know, you need to maybe get in the ring with something before you get back, because I hadn't been in the ring for 25 years. And I got battered around the ring by a couple of 25-year-olds the week before, which was a, a good lesson to me again. So when I got in the ring next week for the charity fight, I was a little bit wiser again. I, I learned again. <laughs> you know? The world continues to evolve, and the new norm isn't fully clear yet. But what does remain constant is the core message from our friends at Bose. Stay calm. Stay centred and stay connected. Communication is key in everything we do and goes a long way to nurturing both ourselves and our relationships with others. So continue to talk about what matters to you. And don't be afraid to block out unhelpful noise or indeed to embrace silence because doing both can be great. Some of the ways we work will have changed forever. Embrace that. Make those new ways work for you. Shape the new norm to suit you. Feel more, do more, be more with Bose. Right, so let's cast our mind back to the early 90s then. So you've joined the SAS. You are a mountain troop specialist. Tell us yeah. what that involves. So basically, the way it works is, you know, you, you go into the Special Air Service Regiment and there's a number of skills, you know, diving out of planes, being under the water, being on top of the water, being over the desert, being on the mountains. And I, I went to the mountain troop. I went to, I've become a specialist in mountaineering and operating in mountainous warfare. So you do everything in the art, you know, Arctic warfare, you do skiing, you do mountain climbing in France, all over Europe, all over the world. And you develop those skills to the best you can. Not to say you're going to be some sort of spider that can climb up windows. It's it's a different type of climbing. You know, you, you need to be able to climb. You need to be able to use ropes, but you're climbing with massive amount of equipment and kit. And you could be dragging a quad bike or a vehicle up a mountain, believe it or not. It's that sort of skill set. Anyway, so I went to Mountain Troop and I went to B Squadron, which are famous for the Iranian embassy. And they're a fantastic uh, squadron, of course. And yeah, and... and like everybody else, again, you get there, you start at the bottom of the pile. To a degree, you do, but it's a different. It was a different world. These, this is a very mature, uh, and wrong to say, say, or don't take that the wrong way, but 
it's a, it's different. You, we're smaller numbers. We're a little bit more grown up. There is fun there, but not as much fun as there is in like the Parachute Regiment and other regiments and stuff like that. It's, it's more serious. You're operating at a, a you know a very an higher level in terms of intelligence, and um, all our work is strategic. It's government changing. It's will changing. So you have to be quite serious. But you're accepted as an adult immediately. As a newest guy, these guys have been there way before me. They've been in many wars and conflicts and worked in natural disaster zones and got such knowledge and experience. But they still expected me to throw something into the pot, which was great. You know, you might be the newest kid on the block, but, you know, oh, well, so we're gonna, we've got to attack this chemical. Oh, I used to work in, you know, a chemical plant, but whatever it might be, you've all got something to add. Do you know what I'm saying? And yeah. that's how the world was. So this new world opened up to me. And you just went from learning all these skills to being on operations around the globe that I never even knew existed places. But doing amazing things, absolutely amazing things. And not all in conflict. Some of them is in conservation type stuff where there'd been natural disasters. And but we just had a, an interest there because it was a former British Connolly or we've got British people there or whatever it might be. So it was just this unbelievable world. And, you know, I was learning a new language. Bear in mind, I had no education when I left school. Now I'm learning, a, a, you know, a, a language, again, which I never even knew existed. I'm learning all these skills, you know, and it was just, it was amazing. What do you think drew a kid from Warsaw to the mountains? Why did you choose that? <laughs> um, I don't know, because I, th I think... I think it's hard. It's tough. I, we call it, you know, if any sort of regiment guys are listening, everybody says, my troop's hard, you know, hair troop, which is in the sky and under boat troop under the water and on the water and whatever. And I was called mountain troop, man's troop. This is man's troop. Only men go to mountain troop. <laughs> and it's tough. It's tough. I love the challenge. And it was something I hadn't done a great deal of, if I'm honest. And it was a new, I thought, I want to learn about that. I, I want to go and challenge myself again challenge myself within a challenge, you know, challenge myself to get into the regiment and then to, that's where I want to go. But where did and that plus, come from? Where did that motivation come from? Because, you know, as you say, you're a son of two factory workers. What, what pulled you out of that? I think living a kind of, uh, you know, kind of a, a poor life and realising if I want anything, I've got to work hard for it. Mm. And that, that's kind of, it gave me that drive. I, no one's going to come and give me hand downs and do this. You've got to, if I want it, I need, I, I've got to go and get it. And I've always had that drive inside me to, to go. And again, the mantra was a little further, people telling me, no, you've got to get, you, you've got to be uncomfortable. It's going to be hard. And if it's hard and you've earned it, you feel better about it. It's true. You know, so I've always had that drive to go. And, and the other thing is now, I look at, as an older person, I, I see everything as a passage in time. So right now I'm still running. You know, I can outrun most 20 year olds probably and I'm still doing this and doing that and it hurts but in my head I'm saying to myself there'll come a time soon or not too far away where I won't be able to do this so I'll keep doing it while I can yeah so it's it's that you know just thinking life is that cliche is short it really is and you've just got to make it work and enjoy it we can all sit and have a pity party and no one's going to change it on you so just let it go go Get up and go. You know, the, the worst thing I ever get is frustration through injury when I can't train and I can't do something. That really drives me insane. But you've just got to get through it. You've just got to do what you need to do and then just keep 
keep molten have it in there that you can do it and go for it and again i can't do everything i pretend i can and i'll go for it but so it, it keeps me at least moving forward so do you apply that same approach to fear because i think what puts people off a lot of things in life is is fear or fear of the unknown fear of you know lack of confidence in themselves and so they shy away from things i think we're all guilty of that to an extent but how would you advise people in tackling fear and it could be on any level it can be a daily level going to work it could be dealing with the environment that we find yeah. ourselves in at the moment coronavirus it's just you know there's been a lot of peddling of fear in the in the press which i think has um been pretty destructive actually and i've seen people react in really different ways and i feel like oh, yeah. i've learned about friends and family i've seen them react in different ways I've, I, I feel like i've learned a lot about people so do you have advice for anyone out there listening about how to deal with fear whatever level yeah. whatever form it comes in yeah it comes in all sorts of forms and depending you know it, it, it fear is it's, it's a mixture of adrenaline generally and excitement and it's about having the right balance and not being and doing it in your head whatever you're doing have some you know risk mitigation think about what are you going to do and is it going to really kill someone, kill you or arm somebody, then if it is, think twice, don't before you step into it and do it. And whether that's stepping out to an old person's home when you shouldn't be there or whatever it is as you're talking about coronavirus. And then the other thing with fear is failure, fear is failure. People are afraid to fail. People are afraid to get knocked back. And, and that's why they won't step forward and go for it. So my advice is don't be afraid to get it wrong. Forget the word failure. Don't be afraid to get it wrong but be ready to learn from it. Mm. Okay. And whatever, even if you get it wrong, there'll be elements in that thing you've got wrong that are positive and keep those bits of positive of whatever that may be and take it forward to the next thing and go again. Don't be afraid to try again. You know, so any type of fear or stepping out of the unknown risk mitigation, do your own work it out. Am I going to arm somebody? Am I going to do something detrimental to somebody else or the environment or to collateral damage I shouldn't be doing? Then don't do it. Mm. All right. If it's not, the only thing it's going to arm is my reputation or my, how I feel. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of it. Step so, forward and go for it. Does it therefore get easier to be braver? Like, I suppose a threatening situation can feel raw in any sense of it, but you've talked about mitigating risk and perhaps your experience of those situations make, makes you seemingly braver to people looking at you. Is does that just come with experience? Does that just come with that come with a mindset? I think everybody's got that element of um, dealing with fear. Everyone's got that bravery inside them. It's, it's choosing when to use it. You know, it's like a wild example, I guess if you're stood there and you see somebody like, attacking somebody and rather than stand there and watch it or stand there with a freaking camera video on it which a lot of people do you know it's wrong it's about doing what's right step in you may you may get a slap you may get bruised you know but don't be afraid to 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 step in and do something about it don't just stand there walk away and think oh, i should have done something do it just mm. do it just get in there and do it you know and again risk mitigation when he's wielding a, a sword or an knife and then maybe step back and think of another way, but don't just disregard it and pretend it's not happening. And that's a, that's a problem I, I kind of see a lot of is people would rather stand back and watch something that's wrong mm. and video it or, or not help. 
you've got to be able to help. You've got to be able to do stuff and don't be afraid to do that. You know, but that risk mitigation has got to be quick. It's a, it's a quick decision. So what underpinned your decision to leave the SAS? What, how did it all come, kind of come to a conclusion for you? I think age, um, to be honest. Um, although I could have I'd still be there and do a great job with the SAS, we all like to do the, the, the following active stuff, jumping through windows, blowing in walls, da -da -da -da, jumping out alleys, jumping out. You know, there comes a time when you can't do that as well and as much as you'd like. So you, you end up doing a job that still good, but it's not really what I want to be doing. And I, I, for me, I felt, you know, I've done 20, I say 27 years. I actually did a lot longer than that. You know, probably 30 odd, 30 something years because I, I stayed within the reserve part of the SAS. And there comes a time where you just feel it's time to try something new now. Mm. It's time to let the younger generation come through and take their part and do their bit. And that's what we do. And it's hard. It's hard to step out because it's probably the mo most amazing job in the world, you know, and it's, it's difficult to let go. And you always think, oh, I wish you hear stories that they've just done this job. They've done that. And you think, ah, but then yeah, I do. I, I, I take a breath. and I go, you know what? I was fortunate. I was lucky, very lucky to still be able to walk away from stuff. And I've just got to embrace those memories because had I been there on that next job, I might not be so lucky. I might not, I might be that person that don't walk away. So, so the transition was hard, but, but you know, you've just got to make it happen. I did make it happen. I was fortunate because I was offered a good job to leave to and it was new, it was different. So I thought, yeah, time to go. It's time to go. And was anything, did anything come close to giving you that kind of fix, that hit that you got from being in the SAS? Has anything come close to that? Come close, yes, but nothing. You'll never get the buzz or the hit that you get within the regiment because it's, it's so real and it's so full on and, and the rewards are amazing that you never get to, to share with people because we're fun. But you know yourself in your heart. Yeah, I mean, the stuff I've done since, you know, the conservation stuff, the, the charity stuff, bouncing to places like, which I'm very heavily involved, into Haiti. And you get a buzz out of seeing how desperate people are for how strong they are in their mind and the will to survive and fight and being able to offer something feels good you know to be able to you know my knowledge or experience and, and see some change and, and do some good and that is a beauty that's the, the best thing i ever took away from the military is that knowledge and experience and being able to now give something back to people in the Pink and Bows want to support you in whatever way we can during these uncertain and constantly evolving times. So we're giving away more noise-cancelling headphones to bring some added calm to your life. To win the headphones, just tag in the three friends you're most looking forward to reconnecting with once lockdown is fully lifted. Always include the hashtag Bows, and those headphones could be yours. Good luck and stay connected. Tell us more about Haiti, because you went there in 2010 and yeah. you came back with more than a full heart because you fell in love. You met your wife. I did. And she's here if you want to ask her any questions about the whole thing, but I'll give a free outside to it. So yeah. after I left, I was doing bodyguarding work for celebrities and all that sort of stuff. I was also a silent partner in a business, which was security out in Iraq and around the world and that sort of stuff. And then... After doing the celebrity stuff, I went back to Iraq to the, do all that sort of stuff. And while I was out in Iraq, 
um, it was 2010 that the earthquake hit Haiti. And like everybody else, I I saw it on the news and all the rest of it. And me and my friend, my partners and my mates, we all looked at it going, and you know when you get a news flash and you go, what? What's just happened? It was one of those moments. And it was Haiti and I didn't know where Haiti, I had no idea where it was. I was in Iraq. But what caught me more than anything was the devastation that was being reported. I, you know, 100,000 people missing or dead in hours. And I thought, that can't be real. That's, that, that's, mis that's exaggerated. And then it was coming up hour after hour, this new flashy earthquake. And it was one of those moments where we all sort of jaw dropping went, wow, that's horrendous. And then bear in mind, we were in Iraq. We were used to people being killed, not all those numbers. You know, we were used to bombs going off every day and people dying and all that devastation. But this was just different. And I just thought, wow. And over a period of time, me and my partner, we, we, business partner, um, very charitable anyway. We, we, you know, we believed in, because we were working in different countries, we look after the people from the country, give them the jobs, give them the work, put help their schools, help their roads, all that sort of stuff. And we'd helped other sort of charitable sort of places around the world. And then Haiti happened. And I remember... We sat and said, look, we, I think we should do something. We should help out. And we didn't really know what to do. So we did some due diligence. We didn't know about the country at the time. We learned, like, a lot of countries, there's a bit of, you know, corruption and all the rest of it. And we thought, okay, on top of the problems these poor people have got, they've got corrupt governments. And it, it was a typical thing. So we thought, there's no point sending money, no point doing this. And I managed to get out of a friend of, a friend of mine after two days of the earthquake happening. And he was a doctor and I'd worked with him through the regiment and he was out now doing sort of uh, relief work and he was actually in Haiti. He got to Haiti and he was helping out. And I spoke with him and I said, what's it really like? He gave me a real download of how bad it was. And, you know, operating on kids, taking their legs off with no anesthetic, all these sort of horrible stories as you can imagine, because that's all they could do. He was trying to save lives. And I worked out and between myself and Paul, we said, how did we help them? We're not gonna send money. Sending people over there is not really the right thing unless you've got knowledge on this, that, the other. And, you know, at the time we were building camps, as in military camps through porter cabin type buildings, you know, these uh, prefab buildings for the military, for the Americans. And we were living in them, they were great. And we thought, right. And he says, we need hospitals. I thought, great, let's build an hospital, send it over there. And I'll go over with a couple of engineers. We'll use local people to get involved to build it. And well, we, we can build it in seven days and we can build a trauma unit, a operating unit and a recovery unit all in one and walk away. We can do that within seven days. And they've got something instead of operating in tents and on broken down doors and because no one would go inside buildings, of course, it was so bad. So that's what I did. So I ended up flying out to Haiti. Couldn't get into Haiti because the runway was smashed. The whole place was still bad. It was 10 days after. And I ended up landing in the DRC and driving across. Six, seven hour journey into, um, into Haiti. And eventually I got in there and it was chaos. Absolute chaos. And then to get this donation in, you wouldn't believe how difficult that was. People promised they could do it. Certain NGOs, UN, and, and, and none of them could do anything. It, it, was, it was an eye opener of... Uh, not good some things are that supposedly are good anyway and i won't go to dwell on that too much but so i got out there and i i had this um school this sorry this hospital ready to donate and it weren't happening i just couldn't get it it just i couldn't get a donation in 
because it was chaos. I ended up staying there longer than expected and I ended up living in a tent that was just above my knee. It was stinking up, there's bodies everywhere, it was smelling, there was hardly any food, no showers. And I was living in this tent and while I was living in this tent, I met a girl who was living in a tent opposite me in a posh tent because she could stand up, so it was kind of a posh tent. And she was a total tree hugger who was out there to do what she could do and help. And at the same time, the donated hospital, I bumped into Sean Penn, uh, who was out there doing setting up an NGO called JPRHO, which is still there today and did amazing things. Unbelievable. The blow was, he was, he was brilliant. And I knew Sean before anyway. So we ended up donating this thing, this hospital watch was going to be, to, and it became a school instead. Sean said, I'll take it, I'll get it in, dot, dot, dot. And we built a school called School of Hope. Thousands and thousands of kids went through that school. And we also built a small clinic for women that had been attacked and hurt as well. On a, a place where there was 50,000 um, displaced people living in tents and tarpaulins. So it got put to great use. And while all this was going on, I then had this brainwave of people need to live. People, people were coming to help and all the rest of the stuff. And we, I ended up building an hotel out of these porter cabins. And with my now wife, Julia, was, I'd met and we'd fallen in love, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. She was helping me to understand charity and, how, and building a, a, a sort of a relationship in the community because it's important to do that because we're foreigners and these people were suffering enough. And the last thing they needed was all these foreigners who weren't really doing a lot for them. They were actually getting in the way, you know. So we built a sort of relationship in the community, helping them and all the rest of the stuff. And, and this is where I learned that the only thing to give in, in these, these times, after your knowledge and, you know, food or whatever you've got there, and then there comes a period where the only thing to give back is dignity. And what I mean by that is the people are clever people and hard people. They just want to stand up and on two feet. They don't want you to keep giving them T-shirts and food and money. They want a job. They want to be able to, And we realise this. And my wife decided then to build a charity called Rebuild Globally, which is exactly that. Get people to give them a job. And she, years before that, had been in Africa and saw you know, shoes made out of tyres. She had this crazy idea that there was plenty of tyres on the street which, which were getting burnt. So we started collecting tyres. One, helping the environment because they weren't getting burnt, burnt. But two, then, to turn them into, which are now sandals, which are amazing. But this, this was a long process. So that's where it all began. And, you know, over the years, we're still in Haiti. We, we've started to build and we're now, we've now, the way it works for us. And just while we're talking, I said, I can show you, these are the sandals as they are today. And, you know, they were bought by kind of coal and people like that. But she implied mainly... Yeah, they, yeah, and now, and, and she now does jewellery and all the rest of the stuff. But the, the people were initially earthquake victims who were living in tents who now got the family back together and now got their own land and their own house and their own living wage, decent living wage, and taking care of their own people. So this is where it all happened, and I really got into the charitable side, and I watched it grow. I watched her with her madness going out on the streets with this crazy-ass idea but she made it work and it worked and I supported her. And, then, and here we are today where it's like, a, I call it a three phase operation. Phase one and two is I help to sort of um, raise money uh, and with the uh, a school program. And this school program is for kids with street kids who've got nothing. 
you know, so we put them into our program. They do an education. They go through a complete system. They get degree. They get the degrees. They get, they get, you know, do exams and all the rest of it. And if they stay with the whole program, do well, they then go to what I do. I work with phase two, which is job training. You know, learning how to hold scissors, learning how to cut materials, learning how to drive, learning all these skills. And then once that's done, my wife Jules has now set up a for-profit company called Dumay designs which i'll send you a link to after you can have a look at she's basically built a factory a solar powered factory where all these people have gone through this training and all these people that we met at the beginning of the earthquake are running mainly women and they run the whole thing and they've got the families together and they're doing amazing and it's growing strength and it's been tough of course so when we do our talks and all our work and stuff we raise as much as we can to keep that going, keep that program going. And Jules will give you the actual statistics and figures of how many people have gone through that. And it's been a particularly tough time now, as you can imagine, with the coronavirus, because they don't get no help from the government. They get nothing. So we're trying to, at the minute, help them with an unemployment fund. We're raising as much money as we can to keep them yeah. alive. Keep them, keep them. They can't social distance. They've got nothing. Yeah. Do you so know that's what? where we're at. That's so interesting, isn't it? Because when you're in lockdown, you, you become a bit sort of inward looking because you, you don't have the opportunity to connect with other people and you forget that actually beyond us, there's people that this will affect far, far worse. But just listening to your story then, do you know what it reminded me of? What's that? Well, it reminded me of the old boy in the Trilby because it feels like you've oh, yeah. facilitator. You've empowered yeah. and you've then, you know, given them that springboard to go and make their own success in life, which is exactly what he did for you. Well, it's, you're right, it's exactly what it is. And that's how, why and how the book got wrote was, I'm this kid who's a nightmare, who was given an opportunity. I'm now the old man at the end of the book, who's now, and rightly so, but yeah, so. You're not 70 yet. Huh? <laughs> you're, not, you're not that old, you're not 70 yet. So did you find the book quite therapeutic? Was it quite a sort of cathartic process, being able to go back did, to yeah. life? Tell everyone, tell everyone what it's called, where they can get it. It's it's called the hard way, and it's basically my sort of journey through life and lessons learned. Um, you know, from what we've just been talking about the, the school, the, the childhood, adolescence, all the things that I've done wrong, wrong, and what I learned lessons about, and right through to what I got right and and achieving things that I probably people would say you should never have achieved, which proves you can do it. You can really do it. So it's all that, and it talks about all my charity stuff how I got involved in that and why, and as we just talked briefly about, grow up to, you know, jobs that I've had, to be decorated by the Queen, to be, you know, working in TV, going from one side of a camera as a security guard to being in front of a camera. Now, all that came about, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so that's what the book's about. And you can get it on Amazon, you can get it on my website, which is, then you get a signed copy, of course. Uh, but, yeah. So, and, yeah, it, it was very, you asked, it was very therapeutic writing, because me and Jules actually went up to, we took a break and went up to New York. We've been in Haiti. It was really exhausting. We took a little break, went up to New York. And she was writing her book, um, which she's still working on. And I just thought, well, I'll just write down my life's tapestry of events. So kind of what I did. And yeah, writing it out made me laugh because you remember all the funny stories. You forget all the tragedy and the heartache. And it was just g giggling to myself, writing certain little bits down, like, you know, just thinking, oh, God, I remember when that happened. This, 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 this. And it's... It's mental when you, you piece your life together like that jigsaw. You think, how do I have time to do all that? But in reality, you did, you know? 
it's interesting that you say you forget all the, the, the tragedy and the heartache. Do, do you have any kind of demons from your, from your time serving? Because, you know, you wouldn't be human if you didn't carry some of that into, you know, back into Civvy Street. No, I, I don't. I mean, I've been fortunate, you know, you know, this week is mental health week and I know a lot of people are suffering and, and it's hard, it's tough. It's, it hasn't affected me in that way. You know, I just, not to say I'm inhuman, you know, I've seen some horrendous things and I've been in some horrendous things and I've been lucky and I have my dark moments. I have my thoughts sometimes, but for some reason I just push through it. I just think, you know, it's happened, it's gone. It's, it's, and I'm able to do that. And I know people, some people are not fortunate to be able to do that. But I just sort of, um, you know, the, you, certain smells, certain bit of music might just trigger a memory of, oh, I remember when I was with so-and-so before he died or that happened. And, and you have your little moment, but I just, I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to pick myself up and move forward for it. It's mm -hmm. happened, you know, on a cold light day, some of my, slap me in the side of the head and I'll, I'll feel a bit worse about it but I don't know I'm not inhuman that's for sure you know it, it affects everybody it's just I don't let it or try not to let it drag me back I'll let it okay let it go just keep going keep going that's good so just on those funny stories tell us well first of all tell us what it means to be a PPO what does the job entail when you're a bodyguard for a, a celebrity because you looked after some big names Tom Cruise Brad Pitt Angelina Jolie yeah. What do you actually have to do okay. with that job? What do you have to do? You have to basically, in one keyword, protection of everything, not just physically. It's, it's their image. It's their, everything they're doing, making sure that everything's on time for them and runs smoothly for them and make their life easy, which means normally making your life hard because you, you, you sleep deprivation, just like in the military, a lot of planning and preparation. And people have this image, you know, bodyguard. As soon as you say bodyguard, it's six foot six, five foot across, big arms, shades. Well, actually, not really. That's not what it's about at all. It's about what's inside your head. It's, it's, it's your knowledge and experience, not the fact that you can throw your arms around. You know, it's all, it's all about thinking and planning. And the reason I don't end up ro rolling around the floor with somebody or, you know, do crazy things like that is because I've thought about it. I know where the threat is and I avoid it. Don't get me wrong, if I have to deal with it, I could, but it's, that's what it's about. It's about planning and organising. It's a lot of it. Mm. A but lot how of it. Real, how real is that threat to, to people like them? Is it, is it more about dealing with harassment than an actual threat to their life? Yeah, I mean, you've always got to have it in the back of your mind. There is a threat to the life because there's generally a, there's possibly a threat for kidnapping, for ransom. Because everybody thinks as soon as you become a cold celebrity person, well, not that you're rich, but let me educate you. That doesn't work. That's not true. So, yeah, so there is a threat of that. It's not an everyday threat. It might, but you've got to find out and look, you know, into all the history and all the situations you're in and, and work out whether there is a threat, because there can be. You know, don't forget with some of these celebrities, there's a love-hate relationship. You know, if you spin back to the John Lennon sort of sketch, the guy that killed John Lennon loved him and hated him, loved him and hated him. Mm. And you, you've got to deal with that sort of You've got to be aware of that sort of stuff. You've got to be know what's around you and in the case of where there's family there's kids if you look after them as well kidnapping is a big thing not to say it's there every day but you have to be aware of it but it's more about their image you know making sure that they're on time for something and they're dressed correctly they're not got you know coffee down the front of a blouse or this and you that's you to make sure that take care of them and that's sorted out and all that sort of stuff so it's more about that the sort of everyday live things rather than the, the big threats but there is a threat and you will always get some overzealous person 
mm. who want to reach out and grab somebody, then that's your job to stop that. You know, and then when, although they're not trying to really do any harm, but they, they don't realize what they're doing, you take control of that and it turns into a brawl if you ain't careful. You've got to be able to deal with that. You know, nip that in the bud. You don't want to be rolling around the floor. So you need to be a bit sharp, a bit faster and deal with it. Eliminate that threat so that you're still with your client. You don't leave your client exposed all on their own while you're rolling around the floor. So you have to be ready for that. And now you deal with that and that sort of stuff. And do you become friends with them? Is there is there a line that isn't crossed? There's there's got to be a, it's always got to be what there's always got to be one line. That's professionalism. You know, professionalism has to come first. But there's also got to be a bit of humour. It's got to be real. You know, yeah. I watched that that body go tell me, oh, it's so real. It's, no, it's not. You can't operate like that. Yes, mum. No, mum. You just don't. You need to know who, the, who, the, who you're looking after. You know, you need, to, you need to understand what their faults are, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, what, what they like, what they dislike. You, and in order to get that, you have to be human, not like a robot walking around with a curly piece of wire hanging out your ear all day. That's bullshit. It doesn't work. You know, you've got to have a rapport. But it's got to be professional. Don't cross that line. There's certain things you can't do and you shouldn't do. You know, so you don't let them get... What if you thought someone was a complete dickhead? Would you be able to work for them? Would you be able to protect them? Um, no, no. <laughs> if somebody is a complete pain in the ass and ain't going to listen and ain't, and, and ain't got no respect for you, then it's waste your time. Yeah. And I'd walk away, and I have done. I've walked away from the job because some person was just disrespectful and it weren't happening. And I, just, I don't need your job. I'm away. Well, automatically now, Sean Penn, Tom Cruise, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt have gone even higher in my estimation because if you stuck around with them, they must be good. Yeah, they were good. They've, honestly, every, I think of all the people I've ever worked with, 99.9 .9 of them have been real, nice, genuine people. And that's what they are. Yeah. You know, they're great people. They've got great hearts. You know, they have some weird ideas and ways, but we all do, don't we? You know, we're all different in some ways. But other than, you know, arrogance and rude and I'm this, I've never, I've had it once and, and once only and that didn't last long. I pity the fool. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't let you go without talking about SES Who Dares Wins. And okay. I want to know, uh, we were watching it last night actually, it's very good. Um, we want to know, I know you talk a lot about on the, on the series as you're going through it about what you're looking for, but... Can you identify it straight away in someone or do people surprise you as the series goes on? Do you, do you get in the room very quickly and go, she or he is the first out? Yeah, I've been through, through experience. I, I've had the benefit of actually being a DS twice. I was, I was in the parachute regiment and I was in the SES. So I've been through that sort of system enough times to realise over and over and over, you can, you can't, and no, I can't, not every time. I mean, I, I, there's always somebody that surprises, but most of the time I can go, he's going to go in 10 minutes. He's going to, you know, and it's, and it's generally the image person, the image that you look six foot six, three foot across, blah, blah, blah. Probably loves himself too much. Ain't going to last two minutes when it gets down and dirty. They'll find an excuse and a way, a way out of it. And that's exactly what I'm. So the answer to your question is, yeah, I, I can generally judge. Most of us can. I think we all can, actually, all us DS now. But, yeah, uh, definitely, yeah. But there, there's always somebody who'll surprise you, you know, by just super 
determined what's in here will take you to a totally different level you know you look at the women on the show and they're carrying as much as i mean look at the size of big tony and the little women have been carrying him and lumping him around and so the, the it's it's amazing what you, what people can do if they really want to do it so true and i'm also interested to know does it remind you how far removed what you've done all your life is from the average show like when you actually come in and see them just you know scratching the surface of what you've done for 30 years you sort of think yeah. oh bloody hell actually you know the average bloke on the street couldn't do what we do we are in some way superhuman i never say that i never say we're superhuman we're trained and we work towards what we're going to do but i i do honestly feel that if we're talking really about the SAS, is is we are a different breed to, to most people. There's something different for sure. There really is, and it and it's it's in the mind. It's it's in the belief and and what's in your head, not physically and all the rest of it. And you just think differently sometimes. Think out of the box, able to do things that you probably wouldn't expect to anybody to do, and you get away with it. We're lucky, I guess. We're lucky as well. So, yeah, there is something different. You just think. You know, I know people always ask me, hey, how many of the people that you've took through SAS, the TV show? Because it's not, it's nothing like the real SAS. You know, how many people would, um, would actually make it? None, none of them. Really? You know, you, you do, no, no, no. Because I mean, there's a lot, it, there's a lot of difference to it. There's, it's about soldiering as well. You really have to learn all soldiering. I'm not, I'm, I mean, it's probably wrong for me to say none of them. Based on what they do, no, because they only do a um, very, 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 very small bit of what we do. I mean, it's not course. SA selection course is six months, and then and then you're on probation for the number two years, learning and learning and learning. It's all you know, not all just physical and running around. We need you to be the best for a reason, don't we? Is Jules there? Can she? And she is. She sat here. I'm, I I just love. Say hi and... I'd like to say hi. Um, I want to know what it's like to live with you. <laughs> oh dear! Oh boy! He's wired differently. <laughs> I isn't should he? ask her a little bit about. The, ask her a little bit about the charity as well. I definitely want to hear about. Hi. Oh, hello! So, what's the dog called? Did you hear him snoring? Did I hear what? Him snoring the entire time. I'll see. <laughs> I thought that was your tummy rumbling. <laughs> That's it always. So it's just, nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. Um, your work sounds amazing. Just tell us um, the name of the charity where everyone can find out more about it. Oh, thank you. The charity is called Rebuild Globally. And um, we're just so grateful that Billy is an ambassador to that because really, I mean, the thing about most charity is that you just need people to know that it exists. And I think we're really proud that in the last decade, I mean, over the last 10 years, we've had a hundred percent graduation rate. So every single child that has gone through our education program, has gone to job training, now has a job at our factory. And the cool thing is, is that, you know, well, it's unfortunate that in Haiti, there's only 1% of students go to university. So if you could imagine walking around the streets, you know, where people, only 1% of society is university educated. I mean, that's, that's part of like the challenge of what we're dealing with in Haiti. It's an infrastructural issue that's been, you know, propagated for years and years, way before the earthquake. Um, but all of our kids have graduated. And so we strongly believe that, you know, children shouldn't have to pay to go to school. They shouldn't have to, you know, we should, we should pay for that. We should help them. 
But once they got to university, we said, you know, now it's, now it's a time where, you know, these are young men and women. And so they work part-time at Demay at our factory and they, we have a university matching program. So, and so we do have scholarships as well, but all of them work as well. So they work part-time and then they then they go to medical school or they go to hospitality school or they go to whatever university they're in. Some of them are in accounting. You know, these are going to be the leaders. Um, you know, they are the future of Haiti, but for now they're working in management positions at the factory too. And so we're lucky to have them. That's awesome. That's great. Well, thank you guys. Keep up your amazing work. It's so good. Honestly, you're, you're such a force for good, both of you together with your skill set. You're changing the world. We, 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 like, we like working together. We've found that, you know, we are stronger and better together. And it's, it's been fun. We, we learn a lot from each other, I think, all the time. And I think that's from all people. And I think Billy kind of alluded to that during his interview is that anybody you meet, you have something to learn from them. And um, if you can take something away, then we're all better for it. Brilliant. Here, here. I'm with you. With you, sister. Brilliant. Thank you so much, guys, for your time. It's awesome to talk to you. Yes, Uh, thank you so much thanks for listening to us take care thank you Billy for an amazing chat thank you for your time thank you for introducing me to your wife and hearing the great work that you do Um, there were various takeaways for me from that podcast Um, I loved the story of the guy in the hat and he basically took you under his wing and really changed your life and wouldn't it be great if we could all be that person for someone in the world? Hopefully we can all do it for our own kids, but also reach out to others who may need a bit of guidance, a bit of support, a bit of advice, um, whatever it is that we can offer. Um, anyway, thank you all for your company. Thank you all for your feedback. Don't forget, you can still win the Bose noise cancelling headphones. Still a handful of those to give away. So do let me know who you'd like to hear from on In The Pink. Um, tag in a mate on Instagram. Add the hashtag bows. Rate, review, subscribe. Do everything that it is to be part of this podcast community because I really feel now community is more important than ever, whether that is a podcast community, a local community, the global community. Whatever it means to you, let's be part of it. Let's keep talking and let's build that conversation in a really positive way. So please do stay connected. And from me for now, it's bye-bye. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Is Facebook really evil? How do you secure your video conferences? And can you protect your privacy and still help fight the virus? Listen to DTNS and find out. We know keeping up with the latest in tech news isn't easy, especially now. That's why we do the Daily Tech News Show. I'm Tom Merritt, along with my co-host Sarah Lane, producer Roger Chang, and our regular contributors. We deliver insightful, informed analysis of what's happening in technology and how it fits into this fast-changing world. Just 30 minutes a day with DTNS helps you understand and make sense of it all. Acast is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. From the pink.